In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul is teaching us about true spirituality. In a world full of spiritual ideas of all kinds, in a world full of spiritual options, Paul wants the Colossians, and he wants us, to recognize the true from the false. He wants to help us tell the difference between what is authentic and what is fake. And Paul's message in this letter is that true, authentic spirituality centers on Jesus Christ. When we last looked at this a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus Christ is our treasury. Paul said that in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All we need for life, for wholeness, it is all hidden in Christ. And as we notice, to say that those treasures are hidden in Christ does not mean they are hidden from us. It means they are hidden for us. They're stored up in Christ and they're accessible to those who receive Christ as their Lord. And so Paul urged these Christians in Colossae to continue to live their lives in Christ. He urged them to be increasingly rooted and built up in Christ. If he has all we need for life, then the closer we are to him, the deeper our relationship is with him, the better equipped we will be for life, whatever it throws at us. That was last time, and now in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul adds another layer to this. Having told us, Christ is our treasury. Now Paul speaks about freedom in Christ. We're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 and we'll read through to verse 15. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find this in page 1183 or in the larger print Bibles 1830. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. And, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. This is God's word. And at the beginning of this passage, Paul picks up on something he said a few verses earlier. Back in verse 4, he said, I don't want anyone to deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. At the time, Paul didn't pause to explain what he had in mind by that. But here in verse 8, he does explain it a bit more. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. When you and I hear the word philosophy, we probably think of a subject people might study at university before they graduate and get a job at McDonald's. But here in our passage, the kind of philosophy Paul is talking about is not the highbrow stuff that might come to our minds. It is basically anything that might be presented as the key to life or the way to approach life successfully. Here in verse 8, Paul gives some clues about what he has in mind. He says, it depends on human tradition. The New Testament Gospels show us that Jesus was critical of his own people, the Jews, for holding on to human traditions. Practices that had come from the Jewish elders. Those practices were not in Scripture, but they had become so important to the Jews, they actually took precedence for them over the instructions God had given. And one of the things Jesus pointed to was the washing rituals of the Jews. An obsession they had with cleansing their bodies, thinking that made a difference to their spiritual state. And those kinds of traditions certainly weren't unique to the Jewish people. Here in Colossae, There were uh, plenty of similar human traditions doing the rounds. Today, we might think of the whole wellness industry in our time. Doesn't that often go beyond the basics of regular exercise and a balanced diet? Isn't there often a spiritual aspect to it as well? The idea that cleansing your body and getting in tune with your body doesn't just help your physical health, it also enables you to flourish spiritually. And often, the path to wellness is presented as a path that taps into ancient practices. Meditative breathing techniques, mindfulness, and so on. A lot of that is just Buddhism rebranded. And here in verse 8, Paul goes on to make a striking statement. He says, these kinds of apparently harmless spiritual practices based on human tradition are actually not harmless at all. He says they depend on the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Back in chapter 1, he called them invisible powers and authorities. People in New Testament times did not need convincing there were supernatural powers at work in this world. 
And in our society today, there is a growing awareness of that reality. And with that awareness, of course, comes an interest in trying to tap into those powers, seeking to harness those powers for our own benefit in some way. Just as one piece of evidence for that, next year, Exeter University will offer a master's degree in magic and occult science. Now, who knows how many people will actually take that course, but the fact that it even exists, the fact that Exeter University felt there was a desire for that kind of course, that points to a growing interest in connecting to supernatural powers. As we said back at the beginning of this series, more and more people today are realizing we are more than just computers made of meat. And with that realization comes a desire to get on the right side of whatever spiritual forces there might be in the world. Somehow make use of those spiritual forces. It's an area of growing interest today, and it was an area of interest among the Colossians too. But as Paul writes to them, he says, true freedom is only found in Christ. In verse 8, Paul calls the kind of philosophy he's talking about hollow and deceptive philosophy. In other words, it's a sham. It's a sham in terms of helping people to flourish spiritually. It promises a lot, but in the end it's empty. It doesn't deliver. It's a deception. But that does not mean it is harmless. At the beginning of verse 8, Paul tells the Colossians, dabbling in those kind of spiritual practices takes you captive. So it's not that trying to connect with spiritual forces is a dead end. It does lead somewhere. It leads to spiritual captivity, Paul says. And according to the Bible, spiritual captivity is the natural state of anyone who is outside of Christ. What Paul is saying here to Christians is, maybe you're just trying to supplement what you have in Christ. Maybe you're not planning on turning away from Christ, but you are looking for a little bit extra. In the stresses and burdens of your life, you're looking for some extra strings to your bow. You're looking for some additional aids on the path to spiritual wellness. But Paul says you need to know if you go looking for spiritual help outside of Christ, you will be taken captive. So do not go there. And then Paul gives the positive reason not to go there. The negative reason is looking for spiritual help outside of Christ leads to captivity. The positive reason not to look outside of Christ comes in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. 
the beginning of verse 9 and the end of verse 10 combine to tell us Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not partially Lord. He's not partially God. He is fully God. Verse 9 says, In him all the fullness of the deity dwells. And so the end of verse 10 says, He is the head over every other spiritual power. Every power and authority. The Bible does not deny there are other spiritual powers in this universe. It doesn't deny that. But the Bible insists those powers are all under the power of the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. Jesus is head over them all. So then, how daft to try and pay our respects to other lesser spiritual powers. How misguided to look to other spiritual powers to help us flourish. Our Lord Jesus Christ has authority over those other powers. He is the way to flourish. He is the way to spiritual wellness. And at the beginning of verse 10, Paul says, In him you have been brought to fullness. What does that mean? Well, it's a play on words from the previous verse. Verse 9 told us, All the fullness of deity is in Christ. And now we're told, We are filled through our union with Christ. We're not filled with deity like he is. But we are filled with everything we need for spiritual wellness and flourishing. Or as we heard last time back in verse 3, through our union with Christ, we have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's likely the Colossians were being attracted by teaching which offered them the key to fullness of life. They were being told, you have got a lot in Jesus Christ. He can certainly provide you with some great help. But to get fullness of life, you need to look to this additional spiritual source. You need to add this additional spiritual technique to your wellness wheel. In the face of that kind of philosophy, Paul says to these Christians, wake up. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the key. He's the whole package. In him, you are complete. Looking for completeness or fullness outside of him is just the way to spiritual captivity. If you're a new Christian, please take this to heart. What you have in Jesus is not just a partial solution. It's not just a good start that needs to be supplemented from other spiritual sources or practices. That's the way to captivity. Freedom comes by looking to Jesus for everything. Freedom comes from seeking fullness in him alone. Freedom comes from looking to Jesus as our way out of captivity. 
out of all the stuff that has a grip on us, all the disorders that seem to have their claws sunk deep into us, the way to freedom is to realize true freedom is only found in Christ. And if you've been a Christian for a while, isn't it true that we can start to forget this? If our life seems to be flat, if we don't feel that we're flourishing, isn't there the temptation, instead of pressing farther up and further in with Jesus, isn't there the temptation to instead start browsing around for other paths to a flourishing life? Other ways out of the doldrums. Older Christians also need to remember true freedom is only found in Christ. And at this point, Paul starts to explain the freedom we have in Christ. I say he starts to explain it because the passage we'll look at next time has more about this. Here, though, Paul makes a start. He explains that Christ has freed us from our present slavery to sin, our past record of sin, and Christ has freed us from all other powers. First, he has freed us from our present slavery to sin. That's in verses 11 and 12. That's what these verses are telling us But when we first read these verses, they seem very strange. Look at verse 11. In him, that's in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What on earth does circumcision have to do with what we're talking about here? It seems to just come out of nowhere. Well, it will help us if we think for a moment about what circumcision is. In the ancient world, the Israelites were not the only people who practiced circumcision. But God gave circumcision a special significance for the Israelites. God designated circumcision as the sign of his covenant with them. It was the sign they were his people and he was their God. God called it my covenant in your flesh. And how that worked in practice was every Israelite male was circumcised when they were eight days old. Female circumcision, by the way, was not practiced in Israel. Male circumcision is not a mutilation of the body. Today it's often carried out for medical reasons. Female circumcision is a mutilation of the body. God did not ask for that. So even in the sign of his covenant, God was not cruel. But the fact that only males were circumcised, that certainly did not mean females were excluded from relationship with God. How do we know that? We know it because God said that outward sign performed on the body 
circumcision carried out by human hands, that was just a sign. True circumcision, God said, is circumcision of the heart. It's internal. True circumcision takes place in that deepest part of us. The core of who we are as a person. True circumcision is a heart given over to God. And that applies equally to males and females. So let's bring that understanding of what Paul says to this passage. To what Paul says in verse 11. Look at that one more time. In him, in Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. In other words, this is not about Christians being physically circumcised by human hands. Paul is talking here about circumcision of the heart. This is about our lives being given over to God. The opposite of that is for our lives to be ruled by the flesh. That's the standard New Testament way of talking about a life ruled by sin and sinful desires. A life ruled by the flesh is a life lived in slavery to sin. But here in verse 11, Paul says to Christians, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off. Being ruled by the flesh used to be your life, but it's not your life anymore. Now you're free from slavery to sin. How did that happen? Well, the NIV gives us two possible ways of understanding this. The text of verse 11 simply says you were circumcised by Christ. In other words, he set you free from your slavery to sin. He did the work so you could be given over to God. And of course, that is true. But it doesn't explain how Christ set us free. And so the translation given in the NIV footnote is probably the better option here. If you look down to the bottom of the page, beside that little 11, you'll see the alternative translation. The footnote says, Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off in the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? It's his death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, was very publicly cut off. Cut off from life and cut off from his Father. The Old Testament practice of circumcision was just the merest foretaste of how Jesus would be cut off on the cross. But his cutting off, what Paul calls his circumcision, that was what gave us new hearts. Hearts that are no longer enslaved to sin. Hearts that are set apart to serve God. Does that mean then that Christians never sin? When we come to Jesus, do we live perfect lives from that moment on? No. If you know any Christians, you know that's not true. If you are a Christian, you know that's not true. And the Bible never claims it's true. 
But the Bible does tell us that in Christ, sin is no longer our master. The Bible does tell us in every situation, we do have the spiritual resources to avoid sin. The Bible tells us our lives belong to God. In every temptation, we can make the decision to serve God instead of serving sin. As Christians, we may often choose to sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin. Through his death on the cross, Christ has freed us from our present slavery to sin. In verse 12, Paul Paul follows those events of Easter right on through. Our death to sin slavery corresponds to Christ's death on the cross. Our baptism, he says, corresponds to Christ's burial in the tomb. Christ's burial was a public sign he was truly dead. Our descent into the waters of baptism is a public sign that we are truly dead to our old way of life. And as we rise from those waters... That's a sign we've been raised to new life in Christ. Through faith in Christ, we've been raised from our death and sin just as he was raised from the tomb. Just as certainly as that. Taken together, it adds up to a picture of freedom in Christ from our present slavery to sin. And there's more. Paul goes on to say, Christ has freed us from our past record of sin. Freedom from sin slavery would, in the present, that would ultimately be no help to us if the guilt of our past sin was still hanging over us. To crush us in the present and to condemn us on judgment day. But here we're told that debt has been paid. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Here in verse 14, the charge of our legal indebtedness is a record of our debts. It's like an IOU from us to God. It's an IOU containing everything we've ever done, thought, or said that defies God's good authority. Every word, every attitude, every maneuver we've made to put ourselves in God's place. To try and be God of our own life and circumstances. None of that went unnoticed. All of it went on the IOU. It all has to be paid. And if we ask why it has to be paid, the answer is our God is good. And because He is good, He will not turn a blind eye to evil. And we all like that goodness of God when it comes to refusing to ignore other people's evil. We like it 
that God will not ignore Vladimir Putin's evil or the evil of Hamas. But we have to realize the same goodness of God that will call them to account must call us to account as well for our own contribution to the brokenness and the misery of this world. And we have all made our own contribution. God would not be good if he called some evil to account and ignored the rest. It's all on the IOU. It all has to be paid. But when we first read verse 14, we might think that is not quite true. When we read that God canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, Oh, we might think he just tore it up unpaid. But verse 14 goes on to say, God took that IOU and he nailed it to the cross. God gave the IOU to Jesus and Jesus paid it for us through his death on the cross. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us Jesus had no IOU of his own to pay. He had no sin. He went to the cross as an innocent man. But on the cross, Jesus did not die as an innocent man. On the cross, he took all of our sin on himself. Jesus died burdened down with your sin and mine. He died burdened down with the guilt that went along with our sin. He took our sin, he died under the condemnation that our sin deserved. And the result of that is, when we put our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, we find that our IOU is marked paid in full. Christ has freed us from our past record of sin. Of course, the flip side of this is that those who refuse to come to Jesus, either because they think they're so good they don't need forgiveness, or because they think their sin is so small that God isn't going to bother with it, they will pay their own IOU. And an eternity of condemnation in hell will not be long enough to clear that debt. Any sin against an infinite God is worthy of infinite punishment. In Christ, there is freedom from that punishment. Outside of Christ, there is not. And so if you are not a Christian, please think seriously about this. Think seriously about it and come to Jesus today. Admitting your sin acknowledging how serious it is, not minimizing it, owning up to it and asking for his forgiveness. The promise of the Bible is, if you do that, you can leave here today with a weight off your shoulders. You can leave here knowing Christ has freed you from your past record of sin.
No matter what was on that IOU, it's gone. Finally, in this passage, Christ has freed us from all other powers. We started back in verse 8 with a warning from Paul. He warned that looking to other spiritual powers for help is the way to captivity. Here in verse 15, we're shown to seek help from those powers and authorities is to put yourself firmly on the wrong side of history. Why? Because those spiritual powers were defeated by Christ on the cross. Look how verse 15 puts it. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the Roman world, a victory in battle was celebrated with a triumphal procession. The victorious general would enter the city of Rome in his chariot at the head of a procession, and behind him in the procession came his defeated, humiliated enemies. That is the picture behind verse 15. On the cross, Jesus won the decisive victory. Not just the victory over our sin, but over all those spiritual powers that capitalize on our sin to enslave us, to keep us in the grip of miserable patterns of sin. Our sin is what those spiritual powers use against us. And so Christ's victory over our sin was equally a victory over the powers that exploit our guilt and exploit our spiritual weakness. But, when we compare the picture here in verse 15 with the warning back in verse 8, we might wonder, if Christ has really triumphed over these spiritual powers, as verse 15 says, if he's really defeated these spiritual powers, why would Paul warn about being taken captive by them? As he does in verse 8. Well, the answer is, those spiritual powers have been defeated at the cross. They will one day bow the knee to Jesus the King. And in the present, they have no power over those who belong to Christ. They have no power over those who look to Christ for all they need. But those powers and authorities are still very active in this world. They do have power over those who are outside of Christ. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us those defeated powers still rage. They still prowl around looking for prey. But if we are in Christ, we need not fear them. They hold no power over us. Maybe you need to be reminded of that today. Maybe there is a certain sin from your past that still causes you to cower with shame. Maybe there's a sinful pattern in the present and you're convinced it is going to rule you for life. Do you realize if you have brought that sin to Jesus, 
If you have joined with God in hating your sin, if you sought forgiveness for that sin through Jesus' work on the cross, then if you are still bent low with guilt over that sin, if you still believe you are under the power of that sin, can you see what's happening? Those defeated, unseen powers are trying to exercise an authority over you that they do not have. Christ has defeated your sin. And he has defeated the powers that would love to use your sin to keep you bent low. But those powers have no authority over you. Your sin is paid for and you are free to remind them of that. That is what Martin Luther did. Luther said this. This is his advice to Christians. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. If we belong to Jesus, our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for in full. Our destiny is an eternity in God's presence. And no spiritual power or authority can hold power over us. And so why would we ever consider looking to them for help in some way? Why would we ever dabble in alternative forms of spirituality? Forms of spirituality that no matter how innocent they look, no matter how spruced up they are under the umbrella of wellness, ultimately depend on spiritual forces that have been defeated by Christ at the cross. Let's thank God for the freedom we have in Christ. And let's move forward depending on Christ alone. Let's remember the truth we sang earlier. In Christ, every chain is breakable. We need not live our lives in slavery to sin or in slavery to any evil power or in slavery to the accusations those evil powers try to bring against us. Our freedom in Christ is something to be celebrated and we're going to do that in our last song. The song picks up on a lot of the things we've heard this morning. It's a song celebrating the freedom that Christ has won for us. Yes, finished, the Messiah dies.
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.